This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, this is a conversation we've been looking forward to all week. Carol Masser and I have because he's our go-to guy when it comes to jobs. And this one we have to understand fully. Chris Liu back with a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He's also a former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, worked across all three branches of government. He joins us on the phone from Washington. Chris, great to talk to you. And what a day to try and make sense of it all. Yeah, you know, I remember um, the very first jobs report we got in the Obama administration. We had lost 800,000 jobs January of 2009. Uh, This is 25 times bigger. Uh, And so this is staggering for people uh, like me who um, every Friday look at these numbers and you're used to 100,000 up, 100,000 down to see 20 million losses. It's hard to explain. So... I do wonder, too, and this is where your insight and your experience really helps us out, Chris, is what are the conversations that you think are going on inside the White House um, about this? Because obviously a lot of steps have already been taken to help out workers, but we know these numbers are going to be tough for a while. And I do wonder about the conversations we need to be having about once we get through the virus and things start to reopen. Well, you know, the conversation that should be happening is to treat this as a public health crisis, which is what it is, because until you get that public health crisis fixed uh, or get, get it reduced, um, you can't really start to deal with rebuilding the economy. And, and that's the problem where we are right now. We're kind of half reopening the economy, but not really fully dealing with uh, the public health issues. You know, we continue to have uh, cases at a steady state, well over 20,000 new cases every day. We continue to have well over 2,000 deaths every day. Uh, and, and that's the problem, because all of the U.S. economy or 70 percent of the U.S. economy is based on consumer spending and consumers spend money when they feel confident. And right now, there's not a lot of confidence. And so you can reopen parts of the economy, but that's not going to make a big difference. The only difference you're probably going to make is you may actually be undoing some of the great work that's happened over the last six weeks. And so... Chris, help us understand where you see that consumer economy in these numbers, because we see it, you know, really in the breakdown, it feels like of the types of workers who lost their job. They are, you know, they're working in in a lot of consumer facing things because people aren't out. They're not spending money. So help us understand that aspect of it. Yeah. Well, well, it's a great point, because in leisure and hospitality, 7.7 million jobs was lost, which is sort of what you'd expect. The challenge there is that, you know, if you think about something like airlines or hotels or tourist uh, areas, those might not come back even if the economy is fully open, because that, again, depends on consumer confidence. But what was striking about these numbers is how across the board they were. You lost a million jobs in construction and manufacturing uh, and healthcare. You lost two million in professional and business services. Uh, you started to see some of the hemorrhaging of state government. So this is uh, an across-the-board uh, economic downturn. And if you're sitting in the White House, you're probably trying to figure out, okay, 
how much of this is permanent, how much is this temporary, uh, which of these industries is most likely to bounce back, which of the ones need a little bit of help to stabilize uh, or, or to grow eventually in the future. Well, that is certainly something our Bloomberg News team has been tackling over the last week, Chris, and, and we've written numerous stories about how much of the temporary workers who've lost their jobs become permanent. With your knowledge of the labor markets, how much do you think comes back? How much doesn't? Well, what's interesting in these numbers is about 90% of the job losses, at least as the Bureau of Labor Statistics characterized it, was considered temporary. Mm-hmm. And if you look at polls of workers, about 77% of workers in a recent poll said their layoffs were temporary. Now, that may not be consistent with the reality of where uh, business owners, restaurant owners are as well. And the problem is that, you know, as this continues, this shutdown continues to go on, a lot of those mom-and-pop businesses, which are such a driver of the U.S. economy, just won't be able to come back. Um, they already were operating under very small profit margins, and they just might make the decision they come back, can't come back, or they can't come back until they get fully reopened. Because even in the states where there are reopenings uh, right now, they're still operating under, you know, restaurants can only have 25% capacity, tables have to be six feet apart. That's hard to really kind of turn a profit or be fully uh, employed with those restrictions. Yeah, that's such a real that's such an interesting point. I've been thinking a lot about that, Chris, that, you know, even if you are able to reopen, I mean, I think about, you know, the the restaurants and and retail establishments here in my little town in suburban New York that, you know, maybe they don't hire everyone back. Maybe they reopen and maybe they don't hire people back for six, 12 months or or ever. And, And I would imagine that's hard to model at this point. Well, and it's hard to model, and then it's hard to figure out what the economic remedy is then, yeah. because so much of the, the, the relief programs that are out there are intended for either businesses that are fully closed or for workers that are completely unemployed. We don't really know what to do if we've got you know 50% of the workers coming back but only working part-time, which is also an important thing that was in today's jobs. You know, 5 million people, if 5 million additional people uh, were registered as working um, part-time, not by their own choice. Uh, And so I think that's something that's not fully considered within these numbers, that we have a huge number of people unemployed. We've got a lot of people who are underemployed as well. All right. Well, stick with us. We're going to continue this conversation. Uh, Always good to talk with Chris Liu, senior fellow down at the University of Virginia Miller Center and, of course, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and some great context right there at the top that, you know, they looked at 800,000 jobs lost and probably at that moment thought this is catastrophic. And today, 25 times that. Wow. It's remarkable. All right. We'll continue that conversation with Chris in just a moment. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. We are talking with Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, still with us on the phone from Washington, D.C. You know, Chris, I was just thinking about as Charlie Pellet recapped the markets, and we talked at the top of our show that despite this staggering monthly jobs report, which we knew was going to be kind of mind-blowing, investors increasingly, certainly equity investors, are looking past it. And, you know, we've got a risk on trade today. I am always curious about how much internal talk goes on uh, at the White House um, and at the various departments about what's going on in the financial markets and particularly in the stock market. We certainly have a president who watches it very closely, but I'm just curious how much of that 
did you guys think about and how much should we as leaders also take that into account when, when thinking about policy and moves? Well, look, I think it's certainly one measure of the health, the economic health of the country, but it's probably not the one that uh, most Americans can relate to. You know, when we were in the Obama administration at the depths of the Great Recession, you know, we were laser focused on these jobs announcements every month, um, trying to figure out how we could get ourselves out of the hole, uh, as well as the jobs that were created through the very stimulus measures. I, I can't ever remember sort of focusing on what the Dow or S&P were doing. And I certainly don't think we ever sent President Obama out to tout about that. You know, in part, it's because the relatively small number of Americans that own stock at all, whether um, individual stocks, mutual funds, or 401ks, I think it has been a mistake of President Trump to continue touting this on the way up, because if you tout it on the way up, you own it on the way down. But I think on a day like today, we especially see the disconnect between where the market is and what everyday Americans are feeling. And so, Chris, you know, part of what's got to happen next, presumably, is everybody in Washington has to get on something close to the same page about where to put additional stabilization or stimulus funds or rescue funds, depending on how you want to characterize it or how one wants to characterize it. What is the advice you would give, especially to lawmakers, you're very familiar with the Congress and and how it works, in terms of where they can and should be putting a next round, which could be the last round of stimulus or stabilization? Yeah, I think you're right. I think this next round is, I would say it's the next round is probably the last round of economic relief. We may Mm -hmm. be on economic stimulus after that. Uh, There's a couple things that jump that come to mind. One is the enhanced unemployment benefits. Those expire at the end of July. Uh, That's the extra $600 a week that went into uh, people's unemployment checks. That probably needs to be extended, maybe not at the $600 level, but probably something. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think that there needs to be an infusion of money into state and local government. We didn't see as many job losses in this round uh, of of data. Uh, But, you know, when I hear Governor Cuomo saying that New York is running a $15 billion deficit or Governor Whitmer in Michigan saying they're running a $3 billion deficit and they have no ability to raise revenues at this point or even collect the revenues that are owed to them. So they're going to have to start to lay off teachers and police and firefighters. Uh, That's the next round of layoffs unless we provide some, some additional relief to them. And then I still think more needs to be done with the PPP program Um, and particularly in terms of targeting it to really, really small businesses. And I know this isn't your, your, your world, Chris, but I mean, I am still blown away. And Jason and I talk about this a lot. You know, we hear everyone, whether it's a CEO, whether it's members of Congress, whether it's governors talking about the importance of testing. And it still seems like there is such, um, you know, a roadblock when it comes to that, that if we talk about reopening the economy and how important that is, but it, yet it still feels like we're not getting to our testing. What, what is the roadblock that you see or where's the problem? Well, look, I think the, the approach this administration has taken from day one has, you know, they, they started going down the road that they were going to federalize this and then they sort of pulled back uh, and kind of left it to the state uh, and to the private sector. And it's become kind of the Wild West right now. And unfortunately, this is only the kind of thing that the federal government can effectively do. And we can look at the contrast. We look at South Korea, uh, which does have much more aggressive testing, which really has been uh, imposing 
uh, stricter social distancing requirements. Right. Uh, and as a result of that, they've been able to keep their cases down and actually have some kind of a functioning economy. So really, this is the federal government that needs to take charge of this issue. Well, thank you so much, Chris. We really always appreciate uh, the time you find for us and really a nice in-depth conversation again with Chris Liu. Thank you so much. Senior Fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, on Saturday, uh, tomorrow, America's live sports industry largely shuttered since March. It's going to lurch back into action big time. Our Evan Novi Williams actually writes that on the terminal. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But in the meantime, also writing about the UFC in a timely story on Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, it's in the magazine this week. It's about how the UFC, the dominant force in martial, mixed martial arts, excuse me, MMA, has been fighting. Come on, Carol. <laughs> I'm trying to get too much in here. I should just go to the story. Josh Idelson, come on in here. Darn, I'm so glad it's Friday. Josh Idelson is labor reporter at Bloomberg News. He wrote this story. It's really interesting because it gets into some of the allegations against the UFC. Josh is on the phone from Palo Alto. Also with us is Jill Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor on the phone in Brooklyn. Uh, and Joel, um, come on in on here because um, just reading even just the beginning of this story about what one fighter says he has gone through is really gut-wrenching. Well, I mean, you could watch a uh, UFC fight and you see the guys get into the octagon and um, you have to assume that it's at least gut-wrenching. But I think what Josh's story is ultimately about is what happens out, sort of outside the ring. Um, I think this is a really timely, important story um, for, A, for the reason that you said at the top, which is, this is we're, as, as Americans, I think right now we are craving sports. UFC is almost going to be the first one to really address that with this bout tomorrow. But the bigger story here is is that these are fighters who are effectively contractors. They're unprotected workers. And for a decade now, there's been this case sort of building um, against UFC that's basically an antitrust case. Um, Josh, you want to come in there? What's the what's the context that the fighters are are kind of uh, finding themselves uniting around? Sure. This is a five billion dollar antitrust monopoly case and. When people talk about monopoly in the U.S., they're often talking about how companies get an advantage over consumers. In this case, does allege that the UFC has monopolized the market for selling bouts, but it's also about what's called monopsony, which is when you're a monopoly in dealing with your workers, that the UFC has monopolized the labor market so that workers don't have much else to turn to if they don't like what the UFC is offering them. As we say in the story, it's like the ground and pound that you might see in the octagon, according to the plaintiffs, that these workers are trapped, there's not somewhere else to go, and then the company has been able to layer on more and more restrictive rules and keep a much larger share of the revenue for the ownership rather than the players than you would see in a lot of major league sports. And, and actually, to that end, like the, I think one of the most interesting little details that Josh found, found out through his reporting was like, even if as a fighter you were going to have some sort of endorsement deal, over time UFC has actually intermediated that relationship and said, we'll actually negotiate those sponsorships wow. for you and then give you just you know the, a share that we say is reasonable which I just think, you know, is, is sort of an interesting twist. Um, Josh, I, I also just want to talk about sports in general because 
this isn't unique to UFC. Every other sporting league has, has versions of, of this, right, where there are uh, the players and the owners or the leagues, and there's always that relationship. I'm thinking of baseball specifically. So how, how do we view this case in that context? Well, the argument the plaintiffs would make is they are just the latest to go through these struggles and that it's a struggle that in every other great sport comes along eventually, as one of them said, and where the players have won. So there is the Muhammad Ali Act in boxing. There is free agency now in baseball. And an interesting thing about this history is that each time there's been this conflict, management has argued this will destroy the sport if you change it in this way. Now, here again, you have these fighters saying they should have more leverage in dealing with management. And UFC has said that this lawsuit is an attack not just on them, but a threat to businesses' ability to be risk-taking and successful elsewhere. UFC says there wouldn't be much competition in MMA without them because there wouldn't be much of an MMA industry in the first place without them. Well, and it's an argument, Josh, that sort of like turns onto itself because they have been very savvy about it. And you described this so well in the story about essentially just buying everything up. And so this whole idea of it wouldn't exist without us, it's like, yeah, it wouldn't because you've got the market cornered. So how does this get figured out? Well, any day now or any month now, we could have a ruling on class certification come down from a federal district judge in Nevada. Judges, when they're ruling, get to work from home also. So we are on the cusp of a very big step in this case, which is the judge ruling either for or against certifying a class of what could be 1,200 fighters, which would really turbocharge this lawsuit and change the discussion about the lawsuit and about what it might look like if it could be settled. Now, UFC says this is not just a bad lawsuit, but a destructive legal theory behind the lawsuit, and that they're committed to defeating it. And in fact, the judge has already said he is confident that however he rules, this is going to get appealed to federal appeals court, could get appealed from there to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we are five years into a legal struggle that could go on much further, but that is going to take a new form very soon with this judge's ruling that will get noticed, as scholars told me, not just in MMA, but in all sorts of companies. But I do wonder, Josh, if there was more competition in MMA, would we not be having this discussion? And why isn't there more competition? Well, the argument of the lawsuit is that there are a a series of different exploitative practices that have gone on that reinforce each other. The lawsuit talks about everything from exclusive contracts with sponsors to the contracts with the fighters. And there's a catch-22 in that the one of the phrases that comes up in some of the internal correspondence that's been unearthed is people at UFC talking about choking off the oxygen to their competition. And in particular, they mean the players. So if you deprive the competing promoters of the chance to get at the players, you deprive the players of having somewhere else to go if they don't like what's being proposed in your contract. And these are contracts that allegedly become effectively 
perpetual because UFC has the chance to extend them for everything from you got injured to you became a champion. It's like an MMA sweatshop is kind of yeah. to some extent going on. So this case sounds like And we're so craved for sports. I know. Even, I know. Well, that's exactly that the point there's that There's going to be millions of people that watch and you know ESPN yeah. is what is is it also in need of it unless you want to watch Jordan uh, highlights from the 90s again, which, for the record, are, are sensational still. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong <laughs> so with that. True. Nothing wrong with that. All right. Thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. It's a great story. It's uh, on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com in next week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Josh Idelson wrote it. UFC wants you to watch brawls, not its $5 billion lawsuit. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, we talked with our next guest back in late March as those COVID-19 cases were adding up. Back with us, Dr. Penny Wheeler, who is president and CEO at Alina Health. They've got 12 hospitals in the Minnesota Minnesota area, 1,400 doctors, about 65 clinics, 15 retail pharmacies um, throughout that region. The system's total operating revenue in fiscal 28 was about $4.4 billion. So let's talk about the virus in particular, what's going on in the Midwest. Uh, She joins us on the phone from Minnesota. Dr. Wheeler, nice to have you back with us. How are you guys doing? Yeah, nice to be back. Thank you for having me. We're doing okay. I mean, we've used, uh, we still are, I just heard uh, Governor Cuomo saying that on the downslope there on the New York side, we are still on the upslope here in the Midwest. So, but we've used the time, I think, to prepare and really kind of expand our capacity for for the community that we're ready. So we're continuing to see an uptick in cases and sadly in deaths as well in our uh, geography. Well, let's talk about that, Dr. Wheeler. What have you seen and what have you learned, I guess, both in terms of preparation, but also, you know, how has the virus been a little bit different maybe in the in the ways that it's played out? You know, obviously, each state, each locality is a little bit different. I, I wonder what you see versus what we've seen maybe on the coasts. Yeah, I think well, we're grateful, as, as many governors have, we're grateful for our governor's, Tim Walz's actions on the physical distancing uh, parameters and the closure and the decrease of elective surgery. And that allowed us to build up not only the, our personal protective equipment, but also, like in our organization, we've doubled our intensive care unit capacity in that time. So we feel much more ready to take on the surge as we're still approaching it. We still don't anticipate that surge in this geography, and all models are helpful for planning, but flawed in some way, but we don't anticipate that surge until probably uh, fully into July now. So, but it, te- but it so tells us, but it tells us, a, us to prepare. Right. But it tells us a lot about, because you guys had a little bit of a lead time, right, to prepare that whether it was taking, you know, some measures to stem the amount of cases that maybe you ultimately have to deal with, but just getting your facilities ready, you know, because right. that's been a big debate, as you know, about the inability for many, certainly in these hotspots, um, to not be prepared, that they weren't given maybe enough lead time um, about it. Boy, you are so right. And we we are grateful that we had the lead time. And I think that we as a community, not just our organization, but we've actually collaborated with all the health systems in our geography to make sure we're preparing for that together well. And that time afforded us has used that and actually time to increase our testing and increase our personal protective equipment for the safety of our staff as well. So I am curious about what you're seeing in terms of trends of the virus. One of the troubling stories that we talked about earlier was about what we're seeing in kids and trying to make sense out of, you know, different symptoms coming out. We're talking about rashes on kids, kids who we thought were not 
you know, vulnerable to this virus. Um, just talk to us about what you're seeing in terms of the cases. Yeah, but boy, what we're, we're learning something every day. And even though thousands have been affected by this and, and thousands have sadly died from this, we're still learning about this virus all the time. And you're right, it has many different manifestations, it appears. And so we're actually, for testing criteria, you know, it used to be cough and fever, right? And now the testing criteria for symptoms, uh, things like fatigue or loss of smell or other things are expanding for our testing criteria, even as we see different manifestations of this diseases. Most recently, to your point, Carol, the one that we saw in children. And so, Dr. Wheeler, as a physician, what do you make, and as someone who, you know, ultimately has to deal with this very much on the the front lines at your facilities, what do you make about the debate that we're having across the country amid, among everyone about reopening and, you know, what that looks like, and especially in a place like where you are, where, as you say, it's still on, on the upswing. How do you sort of come down on that? I think that one of the things that we've learned is that we are going to have to coexist with this virus for a long time. So we're always going to have to dial up what we can be able to open, what we can be able to do, depending on what the uh, community disease burden is in our communities. So right now, for example, we've reopened some of the, I will say, scheduled surgeries because nobody really elects to have surgery very often. But the scheduled surgeries, we've been able to open some of those up. Um, in pre- before the wave because we've been seeing more people who need either they have intractable pain and need a hip replaced or they have a tissue diagnosis that they need to see if they have cancer. So these are kinds of things that if delayed too long would cause patient harm. So we're having to balance those things with actually the viral load in our community. And I think we're just going to have to coexist and and, uh, be able to serve those things in addition to those who are affected by COVID at the same time. You know, this is going to obviously, the old world's kind of gone and won't go back. And this is a virus we're going to um, be coexisting with for some time now and how we titrate up opening up our organization's healthcare and how we titrate opening up our communities and economies is going to have to be continually monitored and watched. Yeah, it's a really good point. The coexistence point, I think, is a really good one and and one that I think we're all starting to get our heads around, especially as we look at a day like today from a market perspective and from an economic perspective, you know, this massive job loss uh, that we're seeing across the country. Dr. Penny Wheeler, thank you so much. President and CEO, good to visit with you again. Alina Health on the phone from Minnesota, Carol. Yeah, we're going to have to, we're going to see a world where there's medical facilities, you know, if you've got the virus, here's where you go. Yeah. And so that other facilities can open up and start doing kind of those normal testings and screenings. I'm already seeing it in my world where, you know, things, you know, that were canceled are being, they're now reaching out to me to reschedule. Yeah. It's living with risk. It, to some extent, is yeah. one of the things we got to get used to. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Yep, and as we drive to the close on this Friday, getting ready to uh, to wrap up another trading week, we are taking another leg up. We're pretty much hovering at our highs of the session. And I was just looking, Jason, at the five-day moves on the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ. We've had quite a rally this week. NASDAQ alone up about 6%, 2.5% higher on the Dow, and the S&P up about 3.5%. So a lot of optimism and the risk trade definitely on. So let's see what J.J. Kinahan has to say about it. Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. They've got uh, $1.2 trillion in assets under management, actually. Yep, got that right. Uh, and J.J. joining us on the phone from Chicago. J.J., nice to have <laughs> you here. Man, oh, investors, yeah, I hope you're doing okay. Um, yes. Investors definitely looking past, you know, still the numbers that we increasingly get on the virus. We just checked in um, with the CEO of Alina Health, and uh, they are, you know, on the, still on an upward slope when it comes to the virus out there in the Midwest. Investors, are they too optimistic too soon? Well, I think that the risk is, uh, you know, exactly what you're saying. Right now, it's optimism. It's fantastic. But I think we have a risk to the market in probably four to six weeks when optimism perhaps meets the reality of businesses perhaps not opening fast enough for people's liking, if you will. You know, you look at the jobs report this morning showing all those jobs being laid off in, you know, uh, restaurants and bars, et cetera, hotels. You would expect that a lot of those will come back, although how long will it take those, those hotel jobs to come back in the hospitality industry? And, you know, again, so I just think as I look at that jobs report this morning, will it take people longer to get back to work than the market's pricing in right now? And uh, in a market that's going to be driven by, as you're referencing, COVID news, maybe tariff news, uh, you have another factor that in a few weeks, and that's going to be, are we getting back to work fast enough? Right. And so when you factor all of that in, you know, Carol mentioned and Charlie Pellet mentioned as he was running through the numbers, you know, tech has uh, essentially looked entirely past all the drama and trauma of this year. Is tech sort of the safest place to be at this point generally? And, and what are some of the names you like there? Yeah, so I think in general, you know, Jason, tech uh, obviously has been, for particularly the chip makers for the yeah. last couple of years, uh, I think have been the big surprise because, you know, all we talked about was they were going to get hit badly when we had tariffs, except, et cetera. But then you look at a company like Quervo, a QURVO, I, I don't, don't think I think Quervo might be something a little different. Oh, yeah. but, <laughs> You're thinking uh, ahead to tonight, yeah. JJ. You're still working. Yeah, exactly. It's good. <laughs> well I'm, done. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about 25 <laughs> minutes from now. There you but, go. Uh, <laughs> quite honestly, uh, you know, you look at their numbers today. Not only phenomenal, but the biggest thing I thought about that: willing to come out and say. Here's what we're projecting, and we're projecting good numbers in a market where people are not projecting. And it's interesting, the one stock that I thought in all these companies that have pulled their projections, there was only one stock I thought got hurt on that, and that was actually Intel. If you remember that morning, they got hurt for not, not projecting. So it is interesting to me that the chips continue to do pretty well during all of this. And I think that that's where we have to continue to look uh, for leadership. Is it a good leading indicator? I, I believe it is. And because, 
uh, A, if, if the demand there stops, what you're saying is so many electronic devices, uh, their demand is slowing down pretty considerably also. So even though Apple had, you know, the sales, they were a little bit disappointing in their recent earnings. The fact is uh, we're still seeing demand overall for what, you know, people replacing devices or buying new devices. And I think that that's a really, really positive sign, not to say that that's going to be a straight line up also. But uh, as people do get back to work, hopefully you see some pent up demand there. JJ, what do you make of a name like Macy's right now? Carol and I were sort of in our chat that we have going back and forth on the sidelines of the show talking mm-hmm. about that one, especially in light of what you saw with Neiman's this week, what you saw with J. Crew. I mean, Macy's is a troubled retailer. It's a troubled company in a troubled industry. Do you stay away from retail at this point? Right. And which oh, and and this and we should point out today, right, they delayed um right. they're gonna their announcement they for the results. Announced. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw they delayed the results, and actually the funny thing is the stock's up on that news. But, uh, you know, here's what I would say to most people. When it is a $5 stock, though. Let's just remember, JJ. <laughs> but that's exactly where I was going is when stocks get under $10 and it's, you know, not on the ascension but on the descension, I think, A, that's a little bit of a warning sign for most investors generally. Uh, when everybody in your sector seems to be saying that they're having trouble. Um, and, and let's face it, most of the Macy's stores, particularly in Chicago and New York, take up some big real estate spaces. It's tough to put the amount of inventory in those uh, spaces that that makes them look filled. But on the other hand, you don't want to carry too much inventory, particularly with the swiftness with which you can do things online. So they're, they, I, I think they're at that point where they're still deciding what they want to be, mm. and that's not a good place to live right now. And their stock may be up, but their bonds are tumbling. And uh, you know, in a case like yep. this, I like to watch the debt markets for what it tells us. Um, I don't know. You've seen mar- market cycles. I don't know. It, it For me, it seems like it's going to be a while before we get back to kind of a normal market cycle with normal factors, normal quote-unquote, you know, impacting it. What's what's your thoughts? Got about forty five seconds here. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I, I think you, you're, you're hitting it on the head. I just think our, our definition of normal is going to change pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing being, at the end of the day, you know, talking about this, uh, in times of crisis, you want to go with perhaps lower beta stocks and companies that have a lot of cash. And in this market, we have a ten year yield. You know, at about points, about seventy five basis points. You want to maybe look for dividends at least for a while until, to your point, Carol, you get more of a feel of what normal will be. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there, uh, pave the way for you to get to that Cuervo, uh, (laughs) J.J. Kenahan. Great to catch up with you, Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade. Or soon. Joining us on the phone from Chicago. Soon that. enough. Sooner than us, it sounds like. <laughs> I was gonna say, we we got a couple hours to go. <laughs> and I'm watching you, Masser. I'm watching you. All I got is water and tea in front of me. That's yeah, all exactly. I have. I've got an apple. I'm staying away from the cinnamon rolls. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We'll